So if you find yourself feeling the heat at your next JC, wondering what you should say, or if you should say anything at all, let's get nerdy. What's up, Pwncasters, and thank you for tuning in to part two of our Journal Club series. If you haven't listened to episode one yet, stop where you're at and start from the beginning. So this episode is all about therapy. And by way of reminder, therapy foregone questions seek to answer whether or not a given intervention has a meaningful effect on patient outcomes. Therapy foreground questions are often answered by randomized controlled trials or RCTs. Sometimes they're answered by non-inferiority trials, but we're going to save that for another episode. So as their name suggests, randomized controlled trials will randomize study participants into one of two or more groups. Treatment groups, there can be more than one, and a control. The treatment groups receive whatever intervention is being studied, while the control receives either a placebo, nothing, or perhaps some other agent. After the study is over, outcomes from therapy are compared to those of the control. In other words, whether or not a given intervention had a meaningful effect on patient outcomes. You read my mind. So the process of randomization helps us to equalize baseline characteristics of our study groups. It gives us more confidence that the differences actually observed in the study aren't simply a result of chance or selection bias. You're going to find that bias is a real problem in medical literature. Medical scientists take extensive steps to design their studies to eliminate bias as much as possible. Right. When the whole point of scientific inquiry is to seek the truth, you can clearly see how bias, which is an unfair or inaccurate skewing of study results, would be a huge problem. As critical appraisers, your job is to uncover any and all sources of bias in the study design. Seekers of truth. Ask the hard questions. Open every door. Leave no stone unturned. Jerry, you're going to scare our listeners again. They sit on a throne of lies. Are you finished? Yep. So as we were saying, it is your job as a critical appraiser to uncover study bias. We could probably make an entire episode on bias alone, but we'll save you from listening to a hundred item list. Instead, we're going to hit on some of the high yield quality points you should look for when critically appraising an RCT. Throughout this series, we're going to be using the best NEM appraisal tools, and this is a free-to-use resource provided by the folks over at Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine, or the SGEM, and we'll link it in the show notes. While the tool is originally intended for emergency medicine literature, it works just as well in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Yeah, and what I really like about this critical appraisal tool is that the quality checklist is right at the beginning. It's an 11-point checklist that really drills down on how reliable the study is. We've linked to the appraisal tool in the show notes if you want to follow along or use it at your next journal club. We're going to go through this quality checklist really quick, and one of the first components revolves around selection. The very first question is whether or not the study population focused on patients in the ED. Now, you can obviously change this to the ICU or the wards or whatever your population is, but I really think that this question asks for you to assess whether or not the study population matches the population that you actually care for. This is important because some results can't be generalized from one population to the next. For example, if we were to study first-pass success of novice intubators using video laryngoscopy in an OR suite, the results might not be generalizable to novice intubators in the ED or ICU where the patient population is different and the environment is much less controlled. It sounds a little bit like the MacMan trial. Kinda. 
The next few checkpoints deal with recruitment and randomization. So in terms of recruitment, you want to make sure that the selection of participants was fair. In other words, you want to make sure that there was no selection bias. Now, there are many types of selection bias, but for the purpose of our discussion, we'll define it as a systematic error in the recruitment or inclusion of participants. Here's some things you want to look for. You want clear methods of recruitment. Where were the patients selected from? Was it a single center or a multi-center trial? Generally, multi-center trials are considered more robust and reliable than single-center trials, with a more generalizable study population. You also want to find out if the patients were offered compensation or reward for participation. Lastly, you want to make sure the inclusion-exclusion criteria are clearly documented and fit the nature and scope of the study. Let's move on over to randomization. Remember that this is the hallmark of a randomized control trial, and it must be done well. The goal here is to remove our own subjective biases on who should and shouldn't receive treatment. So randomization gives everyone an equal shot of entering the control group or the therapy group. Totally agree. And what we're looking for is a double-blinded RCT, meaning both participants and researchers don't know who's in the therapy group or who's in the control group. Right, and double-blinding helps to reduce things like observer bias or experimenter bias, basically sources of bias that come from an awareness of treatment being administered or not. Sometimes only the participants are blinded, a protocol known as single-blinding. Not as robust as double-blinding, but certainly better than nothing. The last point about randomization, you want to make sure that all groups were essentially treated equally except for the intervention that being studied. There shouldn't be any special treatment of either group because this could obviously skew your results. So the last few checklist items deal with outcomes and follow-up. You want to make sure that the study addressed how long patients were followed for, whether or not they dropped out of the study, and whether or not they were lost to follow-up. Attrition bias is a real thing. Attrition bias is the idea that similar patients may drop out of the study or be lost to follow-up thus skewing the results of the patients who stayed in and were followed until completion. The generally accepted follow-up rate is about 80% or more. Let's switch gears to outcomes. We want to make sure a given study is addressing or at least considering all patient-important outcomes. For example, let's say that a given intervention reduces ICU length of stay. You may be inclined to incorporate such an intervention into your own practice. We all want to reduce ICU length of stay, unless that intervention worsened 90-day mortality. Exactly. Don't stop short at a given outcome if all patient-important outcomes haven't been considered. Hey, John, you know what time it is? Is it sizzle time? You know it. Sizzle. Y'all, it's sizzle time. That's stats in 60 seconds or less. Look here, Pulmcasters, I'm well aware that statistics is the EBM equivalent of that weird uncle that you try your best to avoid at Thanksgiving, but you can't sit down at turkey dinner at Journal Club if you don't make nice with stats first. With that in mind, we're going to try and make this conversation with Uncle Stats as painless as possible. All right, John, what's our first sizzle topic? Let's talk about risk. Let's talk about risk, babe. Jeremy, you got 58 seconds. Oh, sorry. All right. So risk. Really what we're talking about is a statistical measure of an event occurring as a result of exposure to some variable. In the case of an RCT, how likely is it for our treatment group to have some outcome as compared to the control group? In order to accurately assess risk, we need to plot out a two-by-two table, which is really difficult to describe on an audio medium, so check out the show notes. 
There are a number of methods that you can see out there that are used to measure risk, including relative risk, risk difference, relative risk reduction, and the odds ratio. One that you'll commonly see is relative risk, often abbreviated RR. This is the proportion of the original risk that remains once the patients receive the experimental treatment. So if we said that the relative risk of death in patients who receive treatment X was 0.4, we'd say that the risk of death with treatment is about 40% of that with no treatment. Wow, nicely done. Thanks. Just one more thing. It's really important to spend some time learning this stuff because some people will spin data to mean something that it actually doesn't. Nope, no more. Your time is up. Whatever. I've said my piece. All right, Hotshot, it's your turn. Our next sizzle topic is going to be the NNT. Ah, the number needed to treat. My favorite. Ready, set, go. All right, the number needed to treat is quite simply the number of patients you would need to treat with a studied intervention to prevent one adverse event. It's derived from the risk difference, a measure of the actual difference in risk between experimental and control groups. For example, let's say we did a study on drug X and the mortality in community-acquired pneumonia and determined our risk difference to be 16.5% or 16.5 out of 100. That means that treating 100 patients with CAP with drug X would avoid 16.5 deaths. The NNT to avoid one death in this study is six. We would have to treat six patients with drug X to prevent one death. Obviously, the lower the NNT, the better. The number needed to harm is essentially the complete opposite of the NNT. As always, you can find more info in the show notes. Hey, not bad. Uh, what do you think the number needed to treat is for this episode of Palmcast? I'm hoping it's just one. <laughs> okay, uh, so the last one that we have to cover today. What are we doing next? The last sizzle is about confidence intervals. You ready? Born ready. The confidence interval is basically a range of value. Say, for example, a range of relative risks. That's likely to encompass the true value. So you might have a calculated relative risk of 0.6 and a confidence interval of 0.5 to 0.7. In this case, the precise value of the true relative risk may not be 0.6, but you can be pretty sure that it lies somewhere between 0.5 and 0.7. In calculating confidence intervals, we most commonly use a confidence level of 95%. And this means that there's a 95% chance that the true value value is contained somewhere within our confidence interval, but a 5% chance that it's not. The precision or narrowness of your confidence interval is directly related to how large your sample size is. Said differently, the bigger your sample size, the more precise your confidence interval and the safer it is to trust your data. All right, so that about does it for our three sizzled topics. Jeremy, you want to try to give a quick summary? Sure do. So, risk. Remember that risk is a measure of an event occurring as a result of exposure to some variable. There are many ways to represent risk statistically, and most of them require forming a 2 by 2 table, which you can find in our show notes. The number needed to treat answers the question, how many patients do I need to treat to prevent some outcome? In the opposite sense, the number needed to harm answers the question, How many patients do I need to treat before I harm one of them? And finally, confidence intervals essentially give you a 95% or greater chance that the true value lies within a given range. Larger sample sizes will give you a more narrow and thus a more precise confidence interval. All right, y'all. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, please, please, please check out the show notes, which have a whole host of helpful information that you can dive into and really chew on some of the concepts that we talked about on the show. Stay nerdy, my friends. Until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading.